Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Amy and I are on hiatus until the new narrative lectionary season picks up in September. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy this episode from our special summer series on economic justice, first recorded in the summer of 2022. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we continue our series on the Bible and economic justice with Matthew 6, 7 to 15, a text known in the Christian tradition as the Lord's Prayer. As we read the prayer through the lens of economic justice, we begin to realize that Jesus is calling his followers toward a life of simple trust in God. We ask enough food for today. We promise to forgive the debts of our neighbors. We ask to be kept away from the temptation of plenty. In this way, Jesus says, God's name is made holy. In this way, God's kingdom will come to earth, here and now, among us. We don't need to ask for more, Jesus says, because God already knows this is all we need. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am also doing all right. I wrote you a song. Oh, that's so sweet. I sort of ripped it off a song from the Jewish community, but that's okay. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Zoom, Bobby, 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 Zoom, Bobby, Bobby, Zoom, Bobby, 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 Zoom, Bobby, Bobby. There have to be other parts that like layer on top of yeah, that. Yeah, I can kind of hear the harmonies gonna, coming like, in. Yeah. Form over time, so it yeah. will unfold with the unfolding of our biblical text. Zoom, Bobby. I kind of like it. That's sort Zoom of our. That's Bobby. the nature of our yeah. relationship, really. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know the people who listen to Bible Worm really get that about us, that we're like interacting on Zoom. Like, yeah, I, th- I think we yeah. I think we Quite seem like we're chummy pretty. and we're in the same room together. But in fact, it's Zoom. We are chummy. Yeah, we're very chummy. Yeah. We're just Zoom versions of ourselves. Yeah. Amy, I do not have a song for you. I feel a little bit like I, I should have one, but I don't. It's there's okay. No, there's no Amy song. It's okay. I'm good. If I did have a song, it would probably be tune- tuneless. <laughs> And well, <laughs> in the way that I and am. not pose any potential copyright infringement. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So, Amy, this week we're in week five of our summer series on economic justice in the biblical text. We're in Matthew chapter six, verses seven to fifteen, which mostly is what is in the Christian tradition now, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting text for economic justice, because I think on the face of it, most Christians, myself included, pray this prayer pretty often, like every week Mm -hmm. in church maybe. And I think rarely do we think about it in terms of economic justice. Yeah. And so I think it'll be interesting to talk with you both about how it's related to economic justice. And also I feel like there's some pretty strong connections between this text and the Christian tradition and a lot of connections in the Jewish tradition as well. Was that your experience of reading this text? Uh, yeah, I loved it. And I, I feel a probably strangely strong connection to this prayer, given that I'm that I'm Jewish, but it's it's you know, a prayer that I can like pretty much get behind. Yeah. 
and I just have that, you know, from from living in American culture, I have sort of the rhythm of it in my bones. I've heard it recited enough yeah. times in church contexts that it's very compelling, and I had never thought about it in terms of economic justice, and so it's really interesting to yeah intentionally take that angle. I think that point that you're making is so interesting that this is like a comfortable prayer for you to pray as a Jewish person. Yeah. And, you know, this is sort of the central prayer in the Christian tradition. And so when when you and I talk quite often about maybe there's actually kind of a long way we could go together before we have to sort of yeah. stake our own claims in our own traditions, like this central prayer being something that fits comfortably and we can pray for the same things, maybe even yeah. in the same ways. Yeah. I think there's something important about just observing that. I agree. I agree. So, Amy, we've been doing this thing this summer where we're kind of jumping from text to text. Last week, we were in the Gospel of Luke. This week, we're in Matthew's Gospel. For our current purposes, like oftentimes I'm very interested in like Matthew's telling us a kind of a different story than Luke. We'll get to all of that when we talk about Matthew's Gospel in the spring of this next lectionary year, which is going to focus on Matthew. For today, I think the only thing that's really maybe worth noticing is that this text is right in the middle of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives, uh, at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew, gives kind of a three-chapter talk standing on the side of a mountain in Galilee and really holds forth about what it means to be a follower of of God. And this prayer in chapter 6 is right in the middle. The Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5 through chapter 7, and this is kind of the center of that. I don't know that that really is necessary to reading the text, but just to contextualize it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's always good to have a little context, for sure. Okay, so I think we'll just start in, and maybe we're going to take this text a little bit slowly and just kind of linger over the phrases a little bit. But before we get to the actual prayer, we get a little introduction in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Mm-hmm. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words, as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask. I think this was clear, but that's Jesus is speaking, like instructing his disciples yeah. just there. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting instruction about prayer, that you should do it kind of, you know, it's like a personal thing. It's not a public, like, don't pray in order to be seen and pouring out words in order to be impressive or something. This seems familiar to me, this concept. Do you, why do, what do you think? Why do you think Jesus cares about this? I mean, I think, why do I think Jesus cares about this? I think that there's a, there's a real temptation to see liturgy, like whatever the traditional liturgy is, as, as prayer itself. And like that what you have to do is recite the liturgy and then you have done the thing, you know, like yeah. check the box. So as, as we were saying last time, and the way that my rabbi talks about it is like the liturgy is a tool mm. that is supposed to help us to say what we need to say and loosen the things we need to loosen and, you know, help us find words if we don't have words, but it's not, there's, it's not, the liturgy is not the ends. Like it's supposed to be a means to an end. And, and that is very easily confused. Like I certainly to our day, you know, that that people get confused about what, what it is we're doing when we're praying. And I feel like this is a real call to put that, put that aside entirely 
Yeah, I know. I, I really love that. And, and I think that's true. There's a sense in which the, the doing of the thing becomes more important than like realizing the, yeah. like the essence of the thing. In this context, you know, Jesus has started out a little bit earlier saying, don't practice your religion in front of people to draw attention. And he says, don't pray in showy ways. And then a little bit later, don't fast in showy ways. And so there's also a sense, I think, here of sometimes we just, we pray a lot of words or we pray in public or we, prayer becomes a way of getting attention for ourselves or to sort of demonstrate how faithful we are or something, we want other people to be impressed with our fancy words. And so this idea that you don't, you don't need to do that, like prayer can actually be really quite simple and it doesn't, the point of prayer is to communicate. I don't even know, like, maybe I'll ask you that question too. Uh, but the point of prayer is not for other people to be impressed with you, but to say what needs to be said uh, to God, I think. I certainly agree with that thought. Is there something in the text that is cueing you that the issue is that people are being showy? Well, I mean, you have to actually go back earlier in the okay. text. Yeah. I mean, Got it's it. a little bit here, like, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. <laughs> like, yeah. That's fairly strong, but it's not, it's not obvious that's, that But that doesn't showiness. necessarily ring to me as showy. Maybe that's because my tradition has these, like, hours-long liturgies that, <laughs> yeah. that you're supposed to do even if you're by yourself in your bedroom. Like, it's not necessarily showy, but it is a lot of phrases. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But okay, I hear you, the context. If you skip back up to verse five, Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners so that people will see them. Got it, got it. So if you, yeah, if you contextualize a little bit earlier, but I think it's interesting, like these two different ideas, which I think are related about the hollowness or the like overwhelmingness of words and losing the core meaning of it. Yeah. I think that's important. And also the temptation to conduct ourselves religiously so that people would be impressed with how we conduct ourselves religiously instead of yeah. for the genuine sentiment that goes with it. Yeah. Now, one of the things, like I was about to say that you just need to pray so that God knows, like it's between mm-hmm. you and God. Mm-hmm. So tell God mm-hmm. what you need. But then I caught myself because yeah. in verse eight, don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask. Yeah. What do you do with that instruction there? I was, I was thinking the same thing. I was, you know, I was thinking, no, speak about your authentic, you know, what is your authentic prayer? But then it's also like, but you don't need to tell God what you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, you know, this is like sort of skipping us ahead a little bit to the content of the prayer itself. But that is part of what I find so resonant about this prayer is that, you know, often I, I my prayer turns into me trying to figure out what would make something better, like what yes. would help in a situation, like, and then thinking like, okay, this is this is the outcome I want that I have contrived in my mind. This is what's going to solve things. And and while sometimes that can feel really strong and compelling, you know, like I really do, there's a specific thing that I think would make everything better. Often I don't even, I don't totally know what that is. And so the 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 prayer that is to follow is much more like you know take the wheel like <laughs> you, yeah. you know like this is supposed to be the way that that you designed it god not that not whatever imaginings i can come up with in in my mind so there is a little bit of like a i hope it's not in a way that like shuts people down but in a way that can be freeing that's like you don't actually have to figure out what would make everything better. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Yeah, I really love that. 
Because, you know, the way that I was reading it is there are, there are only certain things you actually need, and God mm-hmm. already kind of knows what those are. Mm-hmm. And so if you're praying for other things, then the prayers are kind of irrelevant, right? Like, yeah. um, like my way of reading it was just very slightly judgy about, you know, we, concern, we worry ourselves about a lot of things that are really not worthy of worry. Yeah. But I like your, I like your reading of it better. It's, it's more invitational. It's a little gentler to say, you don't have to have your own solutions, but you can be honest about what your situation is and sort of trust that God can sort that out without you having to direct the, the outcomes. Yeah. I like that. Cause you know, one of the questions that I have is like, well, if God already knows what I need, like, why do I need to pray at why all? Why do I need to pray at all? Right. And I mean, I think that's, that's where, you know, the, the verb to pray in Hebrew is reflexive. And it's, there's this sense that like, you're, you're, you're sort of praying for God, but you're also largely praying for yourself. And it's sort of a, a like opening this, this portal of connection and like remembering the connection and remember, like it's, that it's much more about what happens for you internally than what God either, you know, does God need your praise? Not, probably not. Or does God need you to tell God what the problems are? Pro- probably not. But, but that it strengthens that, it, it keeps that doorway open in a way that is ultimately helpful, probably helpful all around, not just to us. I really like that, Amy. And, you know, one of the emphases in the Hebrew scriptures, and I think also in the New Testament, is that, you know, there, there's a relationship between humankind and God. There's the there's a covenant, there's a commitment, there's a promise to one another. And so mm-hmm. praying becomes a way of engaging and trusting and furthering that relationship, even if the outcomes are kind of already mm-hmm. known or knowable, there is still value in the being together in that way. Mm-hmm. I really like that a lot. And to me, that goes along with like the point of prayer is not to be showy or to do liturgy or for people to see how faithful you are. The point of prayer is for you. And in some ways for you just to remember that God is God and God is available mm-hmm. to you. But then I think a little bit also the maintenance of relationship is, is part of the point as well. Yeah. Now then it's interesting because Jesus says, look, uh, God already knows what you need. And then, but then goes on to give instructions about like, okay, here's, but here's the way you should pray. And so Jesus is acknowledging that there are certain things that you could or should pray for. Now, this prayer is in the Christian tradition is the Lord's Prayer. It is quite often taken, not not just read as part of scripture, but it is, you know, oftentimes we'll pray like the prayers of the people or something where there's a long prayer. And then the end of the prayer is, and we pray in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. And then the whole congregation will say this prayer together or something like that. And then it just becomes one of the kind of repeated liturgies of the Christian tradition. Bobby, can I say one more thing about the introduction before we read the prayer itself? Oh, yeah, of course. I just, I it, it was like honestly stunning. Like I think I jolted in my seat to read a critique of someone other than the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the gospels and and it was I just wanted to reflect on that for a minute. Like I it was a little bit of a relief. Yeah. Because I feel like it released me from this quasi defensive posture and also really affirm finally I feel like put me in a position to affirm 
without that defensive posture, what you've been saying throughout our reading of the Gospels, which is that the critiques that are leveled against any particular group in the biblical text in general, I think, are just pointing to a historical moment. And like the enduring truth of this text has nothing to do with that mm. group of people. So like the, this is not a Gentile versus Jew problem. I can tell you for, for sure Jews have this problem too. <laughs> yeah. But I just feel like in other places when, when the people being pointed at are the Jews, I don't like, I don't know, I don't have that spaciousness or that like, I don't get to be the generous person who says, it's not really about the Gentiles. So here, I just want to be the, the generous person and say, this is really not about the Gentiles. Yeah, no, that's really interesting too, because like, I kind of like, I think I kind of laughed when I read that about like, why would you say that about the Gentiles? And like, it's so interesting because I think I'm fairly sensitive especially reading with you to like the way that Jews are treated in the gospels. But I did have a moment of like, Hey, wait a sec. Can you say, like, can you say that about Gentiles? Like not yeah. you, but Jesus. But yeah. Yeah. But like that, like I had a little teeny weeny experience of what you experience on the regular <laughs> read of the new Testament. I was like, Hey, yeah. So interesting. Yeah. I appreciate your way of reframing that. To, uh, it's not about it's all Gentiles or it all No, Jews. it doesn't do it's that. About, it's just at that moment, that was, yeah. it's like, that's, yeah. It was, it was a truth that was located historically at that moment, but it yeah. has really nothing to do with, yeah. Thanks for going back and saying that. I really appreciate that because that, that's important right there. Thanks for letting me. Now the prayer then begins in verse nine. And so I think we'll just take it a little bit at a time. Okay. And just kind of think about, so we're interested in the prayer as a prayer. And then also in this series, we're particularly interested in the implications of this prayer for economic justice. And so I don't want, I don't necessarily want us to limit us to that, but I want us to sort of focus on that as we go. So Jesus says, pray like this, our father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name, bring your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. I should say, by the way, that I'm reading the Common English Bible, which is mm. probably not the most familiar translation to yeah. other to other folks. Yeah. Do you want to just read what the NRSV has there? Sure. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, I mean, the first thing is just the address Father in heaven. Do you have any thoughts about that way of referring our Father, who is in heaven. Do you have any thoughts about that way of addressing God? Hmm. My mind sort of goes to, I guess, two different places. One of them has sort of like the the Jesus factor in it, <laughs> and one of them is is more is more general. The more general one is, I hadn't really thought about this until you asked the question, but you know, this prayer sort of is positing this like mirror imaging. Thing happening almost where there's, you know, God is in heaven and presumably God's will is already happening mm-hmm. in heaven. And it's like the prayer is trying to draw down that mirroring to, yeah. to be on earth also. And then it's interesting to add in, you know, the, the Jesus piece, which if Jesus is indeed God, then like that's the other piece of that mirroring of heaven. Yeah. How do you read that? I love that. And then especially when you combine that with the bring in your kingdom or thy kingdom come, mm-hmm. which comes a little bit later, that 
calling down of the heavenly way of being onto the earth. I want to talk a little bit more about that as we go. No, I, I agree with you about the father part. And, you know, to me, the the hour is important there. In Luke's gospel, mm-hmm. it's just father when mm-hmm. they pray, when he prays this prayer. And here it's our father, which I think reminds us of the sort of communal nature of the prayer. Mm-hmm. This is not simply something that an individual prays, although it might be. But even, even as you pray it individually, you're thinking of belonging to some community yeah. of which God is is the Father. Is that address of God as Father? So this is not talking about God as Jesus' Father. This is talking about God as the Father of the community. Yeah. Is that a, an address that's familiar in Jewish tradition? Oh, gosh. I feel like it is. It's. I feel like it is, but I can't off the top place it anywhere. Do you know the answer to that question? <laughs> I don't actually. I, You know, I, part of what I was thinking was God in the Hebrew scriptures often talks about Israel as my child or my firstborn yeah. or something like that. And so that that familial father-son, parent-child relationship is there in the Hebrew scripture. Yeah. I, I actually don't know that much about the use of father as a term in the in later Jewish tradition. Yeah. I wish I I wish I knew I wish I knew more but like this this phrase not that we say the Lord's prayer in in synagogue we don't. But like in in my head the way I translate this into Hebrew is Adonai Shabashamaim which is the Lord, Lord in heaven which yeah. leaves out the father piece entirely. I wish I had a better answer to your question but I I don't. You're yeah. right. The metaphor is certainly in play, but I don't know if that actual title is in play. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it is. Of course it is. Yes. Avinu Malkano. Yes. But of course it is. Yes, it is. Our father. <laughs> well, can you say more about Avinu Malkano? I mean, Avinu Malkano is, um, translates literally to our father, our king. And it's this like incredibly central prayer to that high holy day oh, liturgy. Yeah. You should look up Barbara Streisand singing Avinu Malkano. <laughs> it's really a cult classic. Yeah. Yeah, it's this, it's, it's a very powerful plea for mercy, but by putting Avinu and Malkinu together, it's like this sort of like loving parent, like, yes, superior, we're not equals, but it's this like, there's clearly compassion in that relationship yeah. and mutuality. And King feels a little more distant. Yeah. You know, so that part of the power of the prayers is mixing those things. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, the sort of Brueggemann's terms. I'm always going back to Brueggemann. (laughs) I should stop that. But he talks about God's sovereignty and God's Mm -hmm. fidelity. Yeah. And that seems like Malkainu and Avinu sort of captured there. And even here in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. So there's that closeness and that distance. That's really interesting. I I like that a lot. I'm glad glad we got there. Yeah, (laughs) it took me a minute. So this phrase, hallowed be thy name, or, or in the CEB, uphold the holiness of your name. Honestly, I've said that my whole life, <laughs> and I've never really thought about what exactly that means. And so I'm curious when you read that, hallowed be your name, uphold the holiness of your name, may your name be holy, something something in that sort of ballpark of translation. Like, what do you think that is praying for? I always think it's so interesting when we refer to God's name instead of, you know, to God directly. Yeah. 
I mean, certainly it adds a little bit more more distance to it or a little more like your your reputation. Yeah. Your, I don't know. It's this more abstract sense of 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 honor, I guess. And this it's some again, this is a familiar prayer in the in the Jewish tradition about you know, 8,000 times per service, we, we pray <laughs> some form of the Kaddish, which is starts with Yitkadah, you know, with may may you be sanctified. May, yeah. May your name be sanctified. Yeah. Yeah. One of the struggles, the, the, I, I really appreciate that, especially the fact that that's a common prayer in the Jewish tradition. Because to me, like, I have often thought, well, God is either holy, like God is just holy. So like, how on earth can I sanctify God's name? Yeah. And it's so it's interesting that sort of prayer. And I think to me, what you were saying about reputation is really important. And it, the flip side of it, I think, is the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain in the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. which is don't lift up God's name for things that are not worthy of God's name. Yeah. Because it diminishes the sanctity of God's name. And when you start thinking in those terms, like God actually does have a reputation in the world. And that reputation is largely dependent on what yeah. we as Jews and Christians do in the world in the name of God. Yeah. And so that oh, hallowed be your name, may your name be holy, is in some way asking God to like reinforce God's own holiness. Yeah. But it also is very much dependent on us to say the things that we are doing out there in the world in God's name need to be worthy of the name that we're invoking. And so to make God's name holy. Now, what exactly that involves, I maybe is a little less clear just from right here. Yeah. But do you have thoughts about it? If we think about like what kinds of actions do we undertake if we wish for God's name to be sanctified? Like, what does that, what does that look like? You know, I, before I get to that question, I want to ask you a related question that is coming to my mind both because of the differences in our translation and then I also have in, in my mind the, the Kaddish, which is the prayer I referred to before, Yit Gadal Yit Kadash Rabbah. I'm wondering about the tense or the, yeah. ac- the action. Like, is this passive? Is it active? Is it maybe tense is the wrong word. Aspect? What's the word for that? Voice. Voice? Okay. Because my translation is hallowed be your name. Yeah. But that yours sounded more like you should go hallow your own name, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, uphold the holiness of your name. So in the Greek, it's a aorist passive imperative. So may it be sanctified mm-hmm. or something like that. The subject of who's doing the sanctifying is unclear. It's not exactly clear. It's not yeah. it's not reflexive. Yeah. So it's not sanctify your own name. Yeah. And it's not, may we sanctify your name. It's, may your name be sanctified. May your name be hallowed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then what can we do to help make that be so? Or maybe the better question is, if, if you're praying to God for God's name to be sanctified, like, what does that even mean? Like, what does that look like? I think I see it as... I don't know, maybe I'm just letting myself off the hook here, but I think I see it as really related to this, like, your kingdom come, your will be done. Like, you're wishing for a, for a state of things yeah, where the kingdom of God as best 
well, I was going to say as best we understand it, but no, this is like as best as God understands it. Yeah. Will actually come to be here. And well, I don't know. I was going to say, and and part of that would be there wouldn't be this constant degradation of God's name being brought into all kinds of nonsense yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that we get ourselves into, but that God's name would actually reverberate in the way that it is meant to throughout, you know, every, every corner of our, of our world. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And, you know, when you said may God's name reverberate, my head was going back to when we read Leviticus 19, when you just read, which we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, when you read that text out loud, it just keeps saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Mm. Lord. And um, be holy as I am holy, and I'm the Lord who brought you out. And it's just like God's name becomes a refrain in that text. Mm. And then what it's refraining is all the commandments about leaving the edges of your field gleaned, ungleaned, and taking care of the stranger and being looking out for your neighbor. And so that's kind of the connection that I'm making is, mm. yeah, on the one hand, there's the don't do all the nonsense. Like, the, yeah. the Ten Commandments, don't lift up God's name for stupid things, yeah. which we can sure learn from. But then I think what you're saying is exactly right. Like when you live out these kinds of just justice commands and, and other commands too, but the justice commands that are in Leviticus, then that is being holy as God is holy. And that is demonstrating that God is holy. We live this way because God is God and because God is holy. And so in my mind, there's a direct connection between living justly and holiness. I love connecting that refrain to like, this is, you can almost like imagine like ringing a bell every time. Like this is what it means for God's holiness to be like active and vibrating through everything in the world. This is what it means. Yeah. Mm, That's beautiful. I love that. You've been leaning forward, which I think is exactly right, into verse 10, bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. You've, I think you sort of suggested a direction for that. When you read that, like, what do you envision is going on? I, I envision, you know, and uh, this, is, this is where I start to lean a little bit towards the, the economic justice angle, which mm-hmm. I hadn't really before this series of mm. conversations, but I think it is a, a prayer that, that, that God's vision of the world will actually become operative, that yeah. our systems will, in ways that we don't, we might not know how to sort it all out. Yeah. But it's a prayer that it will, that it will, <laughs> that it will happen, that our systems yeah. on earth will align with God's vision for the world. Just that it, that it will just come, that it will come. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean to say that in a way that makes it sound like we're off the hook, but I feel like that's this prayer to me is like a it, it's a it's a vision of where we're going. It's not necessarily yeah. this part of it anyway. It's not a path of like here's here's how I think it's going to unfold. It's this yeah. is the end point. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Amy. And when you talk about sort of God's desire for the world, where my head immediately goes is that's not an abstract concept. It is given to us yeah. as we have been reading in the Torah. And I don't think Jesus here is trying to separate from that vision, but it, it is to say, 
he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you, right? To go back to Micah. Yeah. Uh, it's already there. And so these kinds of commands that we've been reading in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 19 and elsewhere that envision this society in which people have enough and the society is oriented toward making sure that the most vulnerable don't fall off the wagon and making sure that people who are sojourning among us are taken care of as well as our own folks are taken care of. Like that vision is there. And so when you say your kingdom come, I think sometimes in my communities, we can view that as sort of this abstract, like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if heaven came to earth and it was just like, you know, we all just sing songs and, you know, like walk on streets of gold all the time. And I mean, that would be nice, I guess. But, you know, I think what's being prayed here is much more concrete than that. And we've been reading some of what that's about. It's, it's about living in a certain kind of way that God has already told us. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's important. I feel a real sense of, you know, I, it's, it's so funny. I had, again, until we started talking, I wasn't thinking about this, the, the Kaddish prayer so much. But now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And there's this, you know, the, the beginning of it is sort of may God's name be magnified and sanctified and, you know, all, all of that stuff. And then there's this sort of pivot point partway through the prayer that says, it almost is like this meta commentary, like, this is how we pray down here. But like, la'ela, la'ela, like we know that there is, there is something beyond what we can there's there's something beyond like there is yeah. there is a kingdom of heaven and we can't quite capture what we're trying to mm. express with any words that can be spoken but it's like this gesturing towards something so much bigger and i hope that doesn't diminish what you just said i think they go together no i love that amy so much because you know what what i was then thinking is so deuteronomy gives us the kind of vision of what that could look like in the near term yeah. And then I love that idea that there is then some fulfillment of that beyond what we can imagine mm-hmm. that is like that, but but even more so. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful idea. And so so then maybe you think, you know, whereas Deuteronomy says when people fall into debt every seventh year, you sort of restore their debts. Then maybe if you think beyond that beyond, then yeah. you end up in a world where there's no such thing as a debt right. economy. Right, right, right. Yeah, I love that. And and I love the I like Ayla Layla that it's it's out there. We can't quite see it. There's this like longing for it. Like you know it. it's there, but you can't like and it really fits with this idea of like don't heap up empty phrases. Like your words yeah. aren't gonna cut it anyway. Just like reach yeah. reach toward the thing. Yeah. I love that. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or, for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Bible and podcast for details. And now back to this week's special episode. So I think what we'll do then is just take these next verses one at a time. Okay. And see what we can see what we can see in them. So verse 11, 
in the CEB, give us the bread we need for today. How does that read in the NRSV? Give us this day our daily bread. There's a little bit of debate about that Greek word there, epiousios. It could mean daily. It could mean sort of the bread we need for today. It could mean the necessary bread. Some Mm -hmm. people translate it as the bread we need for tomorrow, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the same idea, but a little, like it adds a different little inflection there. Whatever you make of all of that, what what do you think that prayer is? Like it's a it's a pretty it's not a big ask. No, <laughs> maybe. What do you think about that? Give us the bread we need for today. I mean, it's. I mean, it makes me think of like the manna, you know, yeah. in the wilderness. The provide for our actual need right now in this moment, but but without. This is maybe a little. Maybe this is unnecessary addition here. Like without giving us this sort of long-term sense of, without, without giving us like extra food that would give us some kind of long sense of, long-term sense of stability that would come from something other than trusting God. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's just, it's just this moment. It feels so different to me, like to, to take care of what you actually need in that moment, but you have to continue to trust that that will come or you'll be an anxious disaster. But like it has, it has taken care of your actual need, but not of your anxiety. How about that? Yeah. I love that connection to the manna story, which we read together back last fall. Yeah. I think that's right. So it's the bread, we give us the bread that we need for today. And I do think when I pray this in my upper middle class congregation, I, I say the daily part really loud. <laughs> Look, I'm probably being showy, uh, but <laughs> like it's as much a reminder for me as anything else. But I say, give us this day our daily bread. And it's exactly that, trying to remember the manna story. Like, I just need the bread for today. Yeah. And if I pray this prayer every day and God responds to this prayer every day, then I'll have enough bread today and I'll have it again tomorrow and I'll have it again the day after. And that's that's the manna story right there. Yeah. You can't save it over. It is also a... I mean, every bone in my body is <laughs> like, that is not, a, that is not a safe way to live. It is you not know? a safe way to live. Following, if, if you don't have God in the equation, this is not a safe way to live. Yeah. I struggle with that as a person of faith and a person who has responsibilities. Yes. And yeah, I think we talk about this from time to time. We've talked about it probably every week for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> this, from time to time or every like, week, you know. Trusting day to day that God, in fact, provides is really a struggle for me, yeah. and I think in our in our culture in, in general. But I do think that's what this is saying. It's not give us the bread that we need forever and always, or ensure us that we will be taken care of. You know, in right. our old age, it is right. give us the bread we need today. I just I think it is amazing how hard. How hard, how hard that is to take yeah. that as like, this is this is actually all you should pray for. Yeah. Because in yeah. fact, you'll confuse yourself. Yeah. If you wind up with an abundance, it'll mess you up. Like we just read that last week. It will mess you up. Yeah. You don't, don't pray for abundance. Pray for Amy, I love that. Today. Yeah. yeah. That's hard. That is hard. <laughs> That's really hard. Don't, yeah, don't pray for abundance because that's what a lot of us uh, pray for a lot. Yeah. Now, verse 12 is a little bit of a contentious verse. 
<laughs> in mm. how, how it should be translated. Mm-hmm. It's said different ways in different Christian traditions. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read it the way it is in the CEB and then invite you to reflect on it. And then, uh, then I will see where we go from there. So verse 12 in the CEB, forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. Mm. What is it in the NRSV? The NRSV is forgive us our debts, and we also have forgiven our debtors. So I just want I just want to ask you, like, what do you I mean, there's a lot of issues there about translation and about yeah. whatever, but what do you understand that to be about? You know, in my in my mind it's transgressions. Forgive us our transgressions yeah. as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. And some traditions say trespasses as the trespass, yeah. trespass against us. No, I yeah. think that's right. I think trespasses actually what's in my head. But they were close. <laughs> There's an ecumenical version that's forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. They're all trying to get after a similar idea, but the nuances really The nuances things. are huge. Yes. I mean, the understanding that I come into this with is that I mean, this sounds so like trite to say it this way, but we'll just start here and then try to untrite it. We are, we are ourselves not perfect. And we can recognize that when we are in conversation with the Almighty. <laughs> yeah. But in our interactions in the everyday world, maybe we forget that and hold people and, and treat other people as though they should be perfect. Yeah. You know? So so that's how I read it is sort of both a call for yes, for forgive me and also you can only forgive me in parallel with how I have forgiven others. Yeah. Which is such an interesting sort of like flip of I want to say like directionality, but that's not quite right. Before yeah. it was like we want earth to mirror what is happening in heaven. Yeah. And and the and now it's almost like if you want something to happen for you in heaven, <laughs> yeah. You need to do it do what you can with it here in that earthly realm. Like if you want forgiveness of whatever it is, then you need to make sure that you are forgiving. I love that emphasis um, on the directionality because, you know, if you say it like, may I be as forgiving as you are, oh God. Yeah. It sort of sounds like, okay, like that's a nice goal, but I'm never going to make it. So like, eh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you let yourself off the hook. But when you do the reverse to directionality, as you're saying, as it is here, like God treat me Mm -hmm. the way that I I'm treating others. Yeah. Then the suddenly the stakes like, way up. <laughs> they go so, way up. So if you're like, oh, I want God to be infinitely merciful to me, then uh-huh. let me be infinitely merciful to my neighbor. Yeah. I think that is so important. I think that is so important. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think God really probably, I hope God does not look at me as the benchmark for God's own compassion and mercy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a useful way for me to think about my own compassion and mercy is... You know, if I want God to treat me well, like I can actually secure that for myself just by treating every, like being right. really generously mer- with my mercy and forgiveness to everyone else. It's a really lovely goal. Yeah. 
I'm a Presbyterian, and we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mm. In the Greek, the word that's there um, actually means debts or obligations or what is owed. Mm. And so this becomes abstracted in I think ways that I think are actually productive to like general wrongdoings. But the root of it is forgive us our debts in the way that we forgive our debtors, which takes my head immediately back to Deuteronomy 15, where we had that whole passage about debt forgiveness in the seventh year. And so like, while I think it is perfectly appropriate to take that root image and expand it out, Mm -hmm. I think we shouldn't lose sight of the root image, which is there is an economic imperative here which is every bit as important, if maybe not more important than the kind of more general sense of like, when somebody wrongs me, can I, can I get past it? Yeah. But if somebody owes me, can I forgive them the actual debt that they owe? Right. Sometimes I think the money part is a lot harder than the kind of emotional part. I mean, both are difficult at times, but. You know, and as you were saying that, I was thinking back to what we were saying about, you know, having just the daily bread, just bread for today and yeah. how, you know, have abundance or having having a savings account can get in the way in some ways of, of what's being called for here. And I think that part of it is, you know, thinking about that concrete model, like if you have so much financial cushion that you are never going to be a debtor. Yeah. It just makes it that much harder. It, it makes it that much easier to start making up stories in your head about why other people are debtors because yeah. you can't relate to that sort of fundamental. Like if we take it in the abstract and say your, you know, trespasses or your sins or whatever, then I, I would imagine that most people can say like, yeah, I guilty. Yeah. But if we want to take it in that concrete economic way, I think part of what falls apart in our world is precisely that for whatever re- for whatever reason that our economies get so sort of out of whack there's some people who who find themselves constantly in this position yeah. and some people who are pretty much never in this position yeah. and it makes it harder it makes it harder to forgive i think yeah i think that's right amy and one of the things that you know that I think is at play here is we as human beings are infinitely indebted to God. Mm -hmm. I think that is very much on the table here. And so to say, like, in what way are we indebted? You know, you could think of it as, well, when I do something wrong, that incurs some kind of heavenly debt. Mm -hmm. But even more than that, if you're reading through the tradition, you know, when God sets the people free from captivity in Egypt, right, God didn't have to do that. And so we owe God our freedom. When you think you think back before that to God created humankind, mm-hmm. God didn't have to do that. So we owe God our, for our very life. There's, there's just this sense of which we really do have deep debts to God and that can never be repaid. And so if you think about that and then you think about, you know, somebody owes me 50 bucks or a thousand bucks or a hundred thousand bucks or whatever it is, like even the big monetary debts are really small compared to the things that we just out of the gate already are indebted to God for. And so I think to the way you're framing that as it's hard for us to think of ourselves as debtors, like monetarily, but I think mm-hmm. we can sort of get there yeah. if we if we imagine a little bit. Yes. And then to say like all of these debts that people owe me are really small compared to the debt that I owe 
So what I think this text is trying to do is to say, forgive us these sort of abstract debts, oh God, that we have to you, mm-hmm. which maybe aren't abstract, but they seem abstract, in the way that we forgive these very concrete debts that other people have to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I actually think this text is sort of playing on both sides of that. Is it concrete or is it more I like that ephemeral? I like that a lot. I have noticed when I talk about this text in places, when you try to make this economic, people start getting real squirmy. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Because then <laughs> there's like a direct ask. Like you just yeah. put a real fine point on this. Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness, true forgiveness is difficult when you have been wronged by someone. Yeah, but it's also vague. Like, I it don't is, know. No one vague. really knows if you've truly forgiven someone. Like, that's sort of. That's, that's exactly that's right. private. Yeah. This is not private. This is not private. It's <laughs> very public private. and very concrete. And it has very clear ramifications for you. If somebody owes you money yeah. and you forgive them their debt, like you had, there was a yep. literally a price you paid for that. Yep. Yeah. So verse 13, don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Mm-hmm. Is that the NRSV similar there? Similar. Do not bring us to the time of trial but rescue us from the evil one. What do, you, what do you think that's about? I, at least in the context of where, where we just were reading last week, I, I am understanding this as a recognition that humans are just awfully vulnerable here. Like mm-hmm. humans, without, without God's help, <laughs> or, you know, or without having that you know, this sort of portal of prayer constantly open and some sort of like deep sense of ongoing connection. It is really, it is hard. It is hard to walk this way through the world. Yeah. So I see this as a kind of either help me, help me not be in positions where I'm not going to have the strength to do what I need to do. Or, I mean, I guess that's really how I read it. It's not, it's not so much help me do it. It's don't, don't, meet, don't put me in positions where I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. You changed the way that I read this, honestly, a little bit ago when you were talking about daily bread mm. and you said having more than enough mm. is going to, I forget exactly how you put mess it. Mess you it, up, I think. It's going it to mess you yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a wrestler. <laughs> this seems a little bit like a double down on that to me that like what leads us there are all kinds of things that lead us into temptation or all kinds of things that can be trials but like that's a really interesting way of reading it is to say if you give me more than what is sufficient then that is going to be the difficult thing yeah so that one can read this as a prayer of like don't give me more than i need yeah because i'm not going to be able to walk walk this way through the world if i if i'm rich yeah you know it's like in the hebrew scriptures the transition from living with God in the wilderness, and then that moment where Moses is saying, look, you're about to go yeah. to a land f- flowing with milk and honey, yep. and it's going to be hard, y'all. It's going to be you've... hard because you're going to forget, and you're going to think you are doing this, Yeah, but you're not doing this. Yeah. And then there's that sort of if-then covenant, right? And yeah. so the way that you deal with the abundance affects the way that that God treats you. A lot of Christians, I don't know, a lot of Christians in the circles I move in, which is sort of, you know, North American liberal-ish Protestantism, have a hard time talking about the evil one. Like evil as an abstract, maybe. The evil one. 
uh, as a sort of animated figure troubles a lot of folks. Do you have thoughts about the, like the evil one or rescue us from evil? Like evil has some sort of a like. Some kind of like. Presence. Mm. This is not a theological idea that's really present in my life. Yeah. Which is not to say that it, it, it um, so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have anything much to say about it. I mean, the, again, the way I knew it in my head was from evil, but, but I hear what you're saying, whether it's evil or the evil one they're talking about, like, this is not some kind of abstract, you know, bad times. This is something a little more, a little more focused than that. Yeah. How do you, how do you read that, Bobby? How do you understand I, I, that? I struggle with this. Um, I struggle with this concept. And but the the more I have lived and thought about the way the world works and read the New Testament book of Revelation, yeah. the more I have come to think that there actually is animated evil in the world. And it takes the form, you know, there's this author, William Stringfellow, he was a radical Christian writer who's writing around the Vietnam era. And he talked about the he uses Paul's language about the principalities and powers that are active in the world. Mm. But he talks about the way that institutions, which are often created for human thriving, end up turning on human beings and becoming like violent actors in the world. Mm. And I have come to think that that is largely true. There's a really nice example of it in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. There's the, the farmer who's been a sharecropper and then the Guy comes with his tractor and he starts to plow the field. And the guy says, don't plow the field because then what am I going to do? I'm going to be out of work. And the guy on the tractor says, it's not me. Like my boss told me to come plow this field. And then the, yeah. the boss says, and it goes all the way up to the president of the bank. And then right. Steinbeck says, the president of the bank doesn't control anything. Men created or human beings created the bank, but the bank controls them. It feeds on yeah. profits. And so yeah. there's this sense in which these things that we create then get hungry themselves as institutions for profit, for growth, for ever expansion. Mm-hmm. And they turn on us. And I have come to think like there, there is animated evil in the world. These systems, these isms. Uh, Stringfellow says it's any ism, which I think is like every institution, every way, like everything eventually can be twisted for evil, which mm-hmm. is a pretty dim view of the world. Mm-hmm. But when you start to think about it that way, there really are lots of forces in the world that are trying to make us do harm to one another or to ourselves. And once, once I started thinking about it that way, then this prayer became much more urgent to me, whether it's the evil one or the evil ones, but the animated presence of destruction in the world, which is all around us when we look for it, yeah, has become more and more clear to me. That's really, really helpful to me. I think it is easy for me hearing that phrase to just jump immediately to some kind of like sense of the supernatural evil and, you know, the devil or, you know, whatever. And and I'm not saying that we have to talk about it being supernatural or not supernatural in what you're describing, but the point is that it is, it's bound up in these like really concrete systems. And yeah, I do. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. So that's the end of the Lord's prayer properly speaking. And then Jesus adds this sort of gloss at the end. 
which now that we've gotten to where we are, I'm not sure how I feel about this gloss, but, but here it is in 14 and 15. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive your sins. Yeah, it's just making, it's pretty pointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in case you missed the point. Yeah. yeah. Is this saying something different, do you think, than forgive us the ways we have wronged you, as we also forgive those who have wronged us? Or however we translate that back in verse 12, or is it reiterating the point? Oh, that's such a good question. And now I'm wondering if like having read this verse beforehand, like influenced my reading already of verse 12. Yeah. Because they do seem... They seem awfully connected, except this one has this, like, for lack of a better term, sort of like clear threat in it. <laughs> yeah. Like the other one is a little more like a prayer that that God will be with us the way that we are with others. But this one is a, is much more like that is how it's going to be. And yeah. look out. Yeah. It's at least how it how it lands on me. Do you see a difference between the message of these verses and verse 12? Uh, I think that's right. I mean, one difference is that the Greek word here, paroptima, is really more about moral transgression, whereas the previous uh, one seemed a little more about concrete yeah. obligation. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if you might read 14 and 15 as sort of a, a reiteration and, a, and an expansion. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, y'all, about concrete obligation, like we said in verse 12. Mm -hmm. And it is also about the bigger issue of Mm -hmm. moral transgression. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I think that's, yeah, I think, I think that's a fair way of reading it. And I also think your point about, in case you missed what I was saying back there (laughs) in verse 12, uh, your God's not going to forgive you y'all. Like it really drives the point home. And, and to say it again, when it has just been prayed, like, I like the fact that that's the thing Jesus pulls out of that prayer. Like, let me just say this again in case you missed it. Yeah. Like there's a lot in that prayer that I really love, but there, that, but that core forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It really is driving home for me. Like I have always thought of this prayer before as, as something very like personal and between you and God. Yeah. And, and it is, but this part of it, these verses in particular are so like so strongly underscore this idea that like there's no you and God yeah. without you and your fellow human. Yeah. You know, there's you can't disconnect those things. That's exactly right. And and you get the sense that it's not just human beings that are immediately connected to you, but it's people. Mm-hmm. And so the way you and your relationship with God out, like the community's relationship with God depends on relationship with the, with the neighbor, both near and far. Yeah. And that reiteration seems really important. When you were saying that, the other thing that, I mean, it's obvious in the text, but I hadn't really been thinking about it is that this whole prayer is in the plural, right? Give us, forgive us, don't lead Mm. us. And so even though I often think of this prayer as something that I am praying it is actually written as something that some community is speaking together. Yeah. And so we're all kind of tied up. It's not just about me and God. It's about God and us. Yeah. I mean, I had never really noticed that either. And and now it seems ridiculous that I didn't notice it. Of course, it. the whole thing is, is the community. This is the community offering this prayer. And even in verse 14, when it switches to you, it's the plural you. It's y'all. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
this whole thing is is communal. There's no there's no one to one here, even though, yeah. you know, I, it it feels so personal, but yeah, but it is personal in the communal. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about being from the South is we have a clearly marked yeah. second person plural. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you just try this on as if y'all forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive y'all. But if y'all don't, neither will, your, will y'all's father. <laughs> y'all's, I love the word y'all's. Yep. Any word that has two apostrophes in it just makes me makes me so happy. Neither will y'all's father forgive y'all's sins. Mm-hmm. Like I don't quite know what difference it makes, but it does. It sound like it feels different to say like it's not just whether I can manage to forgive or not, but there is also a community to which I belong, and it, what they do also matters for me. Yeah. So we we really are tied up in this thing together. Amy, I wanted to come back to uh, something that we started with, which which was you were talking about the familiarity or the comfort of reading this Christian prayer from a Jewish tradition. Yeah. Is there? We've talked about that a little bit along the way, but is there anything else that you want to say about that? <laughs> I feel like one thing to say is like, I'm not totally sure this is allowed. Like, I'm not sure how other Jewish listeners will feel about me feeling yeah. comfort with this prayer. I really, I don't know. But there's something about just the the breadth of it, the like openness of it that it's it it gives it puts aside the idea that that we need to articulate exactly what God's kingdom would will look like yeah. here or the mechanisms through which that will happen and just sort of prays for its arrival and then gets very focused on you know the, the day-to-day, like what is that going to look like in our daily lives? And I feel like there really is a lot of common ground in those two things, like in the really big, you know, overarching ideas. And then in the sort of, what does it mean to be a good, a good person in the world and a good, yeah. you know, member of your community? There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of common ground. Yeah. I also think it's interesting. I mean, it would be awkward if Jesus was like, in my name we pray or whatever. Yeah, like, there's a awkward. reason why it's not prayed in Jesus's name. But like, I think sometimes Christians feel like if we don't pray in the name of Jesus, like we didn't actually pray a prayer. Right. But here, the prayer Jesus tells us to pray has no reference to Jesus or really even to a Messiah unless you read thy kingdom come as, as being a messianic expectation. Yeah. And so there really is kind of an openness here that that I think... This, there's nothing in this prayer, like this is a very Christian prayer, but there's nothing in this prayer that is limited to Christianity, yeah. to being a follower of Jesus. I agree. Amy, if Christian listeners were interested in learning more about, like trying this on from the other side and reading the Kaddish, mm. where would they look? So the Kaddish is, I mean, you really could just Google it. The transliteration is K-A-D-D-I-S-H. It's there are actually a lot of different forms of the Kaddish, and it's used as kind of punctuation between different parts of the service. So there's like a short one that is sung between different sections, and then there's a complete one that's sort of at the end of prayer, and there's a mourner's Kaddish that I always think of as sort of like punctuating this like really important era in one's life that you, you recite this Kaddish for someone who's died. You know, I have to say the, the words of the Kaddish themselves— I almost feel like we would have to do a study of it. I know I know a yeah. lot of a lot of Jews who when they read the translation are like it's just heaping up praise upon praise upon praise on 
on God. And so it gets a little overwhelming, especially when you're seeing it during a time of mourning that's not necessarily where your head is. It might be where your head is. It's not necessarily where your head is. But you can read the words of it. Just You just Google it. Just Google it. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Amy. So we've been talking about this a little bit all along the way. But when you think about this passage in Matthew 6, 7 to 15, the Lord's Prayer and the surrounding text, and you're connecting it to contemporary life, what do you pull out as, as important? You know, I— Reading these last couple verses, especially, I um, made me think of a song written by a rabbi named Menachem Creditor called um, Olam Chesed Yevaneh, which means the uh, a world of kindness mm-hmm. will be built, or he will build a world of kindness, or something like that. And the words in English are are basically if. I build a world from love, then you must build a world from love. And if you build a world from love, then we must all. And if we build a world from love, then God will build the world from love. Mm. And it was, he wrote it shortly after September 11th, and he had just had a daughter born and was trying to wrap his head around the, the animated evil in the world and how we respond to that and, and whatnot. And I will tell you, I have always struggled with it a little bit because it's so it so puts God in the back seat. You know, it's yeah. like God will follow our lead, so let's take the lead and I and I understand how that can be sort of empowering in these moments of hopelessness, but I have not I don't know, I just never super I never felt totally comfortable with God being in quite that back of the seat. But re- ta- the way that we've talked about this text today feels like it feels like a little bridge to me to that idea you know that there is this prayer for like a mirroring of God's kingdom in heaven and God's kingdom on earth and you can pray for that to you can pray for the end point and say like yeah I just want it to have happened and then here's my best here's my best understanding of what that looks like today right now and like what kinds of things might be stumbling blocks to me and what kinds of things I need to check myself and make sure I'm doing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't complete the bridge. It doesn't say these are all the things we do. And now we have brought in God's kingdom, but it's sort of, it has, it has the end goal and the starting place. And, yeah. and that feels to me like as close as I can get. I don't, I don't feel like I need to know all the intermediate yeah. pieces of it. I really love that, Amy, and it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, that there is kind of a present possibility of what the kingdom of heaven looks like, and then the unspeakable beyond that we we can't quite imagine or name. And it can be very debilitating to read, like, may your kingdom come, as like you're just sort of waiting for, right. <laughs> for like, looking up. But to say, actually, we can start to live out the kingdom here and now. And there is yet something beyond us. That right. We can't and and still that there's something beyond beyond, you know, like yeah. it's not just that we're going to do everything and we could, you know, we're not building a tower of Babel here. Like it's not just us, but yeah. Yeah. I love that, Amy. I think my thoughts are a little bit in a similar direction, but as you come back and read the prayer sort of all together and on the one hand, this prayer seems so simple. You don't have to ask for much. Here it is. Like you could say this prayer in 
20 seconds or whatever. But the depth of it is really remarkable. But when you think about like, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come? May it come on earth. And then what you say is, give us the bread for today. Forgive our debts. We'll forgive the debts of others. Keep us out of temptation. Like, if you think about those kind of four things as being the precursor to the arrival of the kingdom, like it's, it is beautifully simple. I mean, there is a complexity to all of those things, but give us what we need today and keep us away. I like, I read, give us what we need today and don't lead us into temptation as these like sufficiency and anxiety. Yeah. Give us what we need. Keep us away from anxiousness about the future, which makes us accumulate in ways that are dangerous for us. And let, let us be infinitely forgiving of our neighbors so that you will be infinitely forgiving of us, which is a really tall order. But the fact that it's repeated sort of twice, and once with an economic edge to it, and once with a moral, um, one with a sense of moral sin, mm-hmm. to me, like, that's the key, is figuring out ways to remain together as community in ways in which everybody has enough and in which we don't hold grudges with each other and we just are generous toward each other. Like if you if you think about those as kind of the steps toward what does it mean to get the kingdom started, like I can think about ways, like those are tall orders, but I can think about ways of kind of starting down that path. Yeah. And I mean, I hope, like I, I agree with you, like there, this is like, I hope there is something, like I can't sustain that. Like I could do that for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I think like praying this prayer every day, you know, even every week, maybe it's not enough, but praying this prayer and it's like letting this prayer be part of who you are. Um, yeah. And if you can do it for one hour, then pray it again and just do it for another hour. I hope there comes a time and I believe there there comes a time when I don't have to pray it every hour because it will just be the way that it is. Yeah. And that's the prayer, like may your kingdom come on earth. But until we get there, there yeah. this is the prayer. Keep these things in front of us. I love that. I will say that this, reading this with you, and reading this through the lens of economic justice has really transformed the way that I read this prayer and made it sort of something that I kind of just say by rote to something that I think like, oh my goodness, <laughs> like if, if I really am praying that, like that's going to affect like everything about the way that I, the way that I live. Yeah. That's the danger of study, Bobby. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it used to be so comforting. <laughs> I know. Now it asks something of us. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, next week, we're going to wrap up our series on economic justice with a text that I am not really sure belongs in a series on economic justice, but it's uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, in which Jesus is going to conclude by saying, there's always going to be a poor among you, so you Mm -hmm. might as well pour oil on my feet. And we're going to struggle with what do we do with that, which does not sound economically justice-oriented, given what, what we've just read. Oh, that's good, Bobby. Stir the pot. Stir the pot. Yeah, let's do it. That's what we do with the Bible worms. <laughs> All right, Amy. Thanks for a good conversation. I'll see yes, you next time. Always a pleasure. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. 
Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll conclude our series on economic justice with John 12, 1-8, in which Mary anoints Jesus with oil, Judas wants to give money to the poor, and Jesus acknowledges that the poor will always be among us. Until then, keep on digging.